well, this is Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. This is Jim Healy. I'm the director of programming of the Cinematheque and the Wisconsin Film Festival. And I'm here with Ben Reiser, my colleague in the film festival and the Cinematheque. Say hi, Ben. Hey, you're here virtually with me. We're not actually in the same room. Yeah, that's true. Lest anyone be afraid that we're not practicing social distancing. And this is the first time we've posted a podcast since, I think, late January, right? We had... Yeah, I think the last one we might have shared was actually the first one that we recorded with um, Bob Fermanek when we were doing the um, the, the Merce Cunningham 3D. Right. So that's the last time you, you've heard from us, uh, listeners. And we spent about the next month or month and a half preparing the Wisconsin Film Festival through February and... March, and then uh, we announced the film festival and put all tickets on sale. And about a week after tickets were on sale, uh, the bottom fell out, and uh, we've more or less been in quarantine since then. We also canceled the rest of the Cinematheque spring season. Uh, At first, we thought we might be coming back in April, and then that became very clear pretty quickly that that wasn't going to happen. Well, I I think at first we thought, okay, we're done. I mean, and it was incredibly painful, but we did start to see some other festivals uh, come up with some creative ideas to carry on in some limited fashion. I think it was Ann Arbor that I first heard about uh, deciding to do a sort of online live stream version of their festival. You know, and Ann Arbor has a kind of unique festival in that they show independent avant-garde works and so they have a very close relationship with the filmmakers whereas a lot of festivals are are dealing with the economics of the movie business and dealing with distributors and publicists and uh, ultimately you want to use the festival as a launch to you know getting it out there into, into a much more wider commercial setting and so Ann Arbor was very easily able to find a way to get their selections put online in having to deal only directly with the filmmakers whereas we had had limits to that and uh, you uh, working so closely with the Wisconsin Zone selections were able to get a significant portion of the of of those selections that you and Zach Zahos and your uh, student committee Put together for the festival. It occurred to us that the Wisconsin Zone filmmakers, especially the the filmmakers who had made short films, uh, their goals for their films were not the same as all you know most of the films that we have been showing in the rest of the festival and most other festivals where there is there you know most of these feature films are on a journey. They go from the festival and hopefully towards some sort of commercial distribution either through theaters. Or online, but it, but but we realized that these Wisconsin Zone shorts, uh, sort of the exposure was the was the end goal for these films and these filmmakers, and and so being able to present them online uh, for free to our audience was something that made sense to us, and we thought would make sense to a bunch of these filmmakers, and and it turned out we were right. I think we got we wound up with, I think we had thirty five. Uh, short films scheduled for Wisconsin Zone and ultimately able to show, I think, 24 of them online. And then it became clear that 
art houses and some festivals were partnering with feature films uh, and their distributors to make them available online for uh, a rental fee that allows you to watch the movie at home and then the distributors were, are splitting the revenue with the art houses and with the festivals that would normally have been showing them. So we were able to do 11 features and just before that kicked off we offered one film via the Cinematech, Baccarat, which was originally supposed to show in our regular venue, which is 4070 Vilas Hall, for free at the end of March. But we worked with the distributor Kino to offer it through our website. And then later on, we offered uh, the opportunity to watch Satan Tango at home, which we somehow pulled off a complete screening in February at the Cinematheque, all seven and a half hours, and still managed to attract another... uh, well, at that time, we had, I think, over 100 people show up for the for the screening. Yeah, that was incredible. And then we had, you know, I think another dozen and a half people who have purchased it online and have watched it from home. I don't know if any of those are repeat viewers. who, But it's, I guess it, it's a way to kill a full day, right? <laughs> you well, can I was going to say, <laughs> seven and a half hours when you're in the middle of six weeks of uh, quarantine and isolation doesn't really seem like much of a big commitment. Drop in the bucket. Yeah. Um, and then last week, uh, also through Kino Lorber, we offered a new restoration of a film that wasn't on our calendar, uh, an independent film from 1990 called Thousand Pieces of Gold, uh, the only feature ever directed by Nancy Kelly, which uh, you can still rent. Uh, that's that that's still out there. It stars Chris Cooper and Rosalind Chow. It's kind of a period uh, western. It's it's still available, and 50% of the revenue will go directly towards the Cinematheque and, and support us. Um, but we're we're not used to that. We show movies for free. This is not not what we do. Um, and so the revenue we're generating or hoping to generate through these rental splits with distributors, I think will roughly come out to the equivalent of what we would normally uh, accrue in cash donations at our public screenings. Um, and so it's, it's anything, anything you do, any rentals of this are, are helping to support us and are kind of making up for that, that loss. Uh, with that in mind, we're going we're gonna to talk about two rentals we have coming up uh, of what were actually film festival titles that were, were showing to benefit the Cinematech at this time. Um, but going forward, uh, we're going to begin to offer free movies to watch at home via the Cinematech. And we are, we're, we've already begun negotiating to offer at least one title per week that will be available for free to watch at home. Limited number of views uh, that that we'll be able to do. So it'll be in a kind of just like the Cinematech, a first come first serve basis, where uh, we'll be asking people to RSVP either through email or through a dedicated website. And think of it as reserving your virtual seat at forty seventy, getting there that's early right. enough to to get your aisle seat or your front row seat, whatever you prefer. 
Yeah, virtual screenings has become a catchphrase that I never <laughs> imagined before. Um, if you're if you're watching it at home and you're you're screening it, there's nothing virtual about it. You're actually watching it, but it's it's it. I think what we want to be clear about is that this this isn't what we normally do. That the circumstances of the time have kind of uh, forced us to to do this, um, but we do it with the love of cinema, right? We're we're out there spreading spreading the message. We're reminding people that of the differences between watching a movie at home and and watching something in a theatrical setting. That's chiefly what we want to do here. Yeah, I was going to say that in 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 a sort of perfect virtual world, we'd set up these these streams to have a sort of a frame around them that had um, on the right-hand side of the screen the our piano and on the left-hand side our lectern with our <laughs> Mac monitor and, uh, um, you know, maybe even uh, like sort of an MST3K, uh, some silhouettes in front of you to, to right. make you really feel like you're there. <laughs> Hopefully not to cough and to <laughs> sneeze. <Yeah. laughs> so uh, that that's going to be coming up uh, starting next week in fact that's such a great development i think it's so cool that we're going to be able to offer some exclusive um, screenings for free just like we always do Um, well like i said we want to remind people of of the difference between watching something at home and watching something in a theater but we also want to remind folks that we're still out there um and and the kind of bonus uh personal touch, I guess you'd call it, will be these podcasts we're going to have, along with each of these weekly selections, a weekly podcast that's going to tell you about the developments of what's happening, uh, what we're offering. Sometimes we're going to have special guests to talk about the films. You can watch the films and listen into the podcast as a kind of supplemental, not a commentary track, but... uh, just supplemental listening to enhance your cinematic experience. This will be a good place to keep up with what's going on and when we'll be returning to our cinema spaces, uh, both at 4070 Violas and the Chazen Museum of Art, and uh, also on our blog, uh, which is cinema.wisc.edu. Click on the blog and you'll find information about what's coming up. You'll also find information there right now about a film that you and I are going to talk about today, which is Spaceship Earth. Now, I should mention that later on in the podcast, we're going to have two of our other colleagues, Mike King and Kelly Conway, talking about uh, another film that we're offering this week, Deerskin, which is an absurdist French comedy starring uh, Jean Dujardin, which was also, like Spaceship Earth, originally supposed to screen once at the Wisconsin Film Festival, uh, which was supposed to happen last month. So, uh, Spaceship Earth is available for a one-time rental fee of three ninety-nine, and Deerskin is nine ninety-nine. And as I mentioned, the rental your your rental fifty uh, percent of the revenue generated from the rentals will go back to the Cinematheque, if you use the dedicated 
URL, which will be available on our blog. And another way to get that is to subscribe to our weekly e-newsletter, which is uh, you can also do on our website, cinema.wisc.edu. So, uh, Spaceship Earth, you want to start us off, Ben, and talk a little bit about this film? Um, I got to watch it uh, last night, and I found it to be uh, fascinating. Uh, a really enjoyable, um, entertaining documentary full of twists and turns uh, about a subject that I thought I knew a little bit about, but realized I only knew the very tip of the iceberg. Um, the subject is Biosphere 2, uh, which launched in, was it 1991? Can you tell us uh, a little bit about what, who, who they were? These were a bunch of, uh, a group of people who had gotten together at the end of the 1960s, uh, and they were mostly people involved with um, sort of experimental theater, um, yeah, for the most part, they they were they were counterculture activists, really. Right, countercultural, um, uh, a wide variety. There's a there's a guy. His name is Mark Nelson, and Mark Nelson's biosphere name is Horseshit. <laughs> so that gives you a sense of a little bit of a sense of the kind of ethos they had, I guess. Well, they they did experimental theater, but then part of their research communal collective life was trying to find out or experiment with sustainable ways of living yeah they 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 set about engaging with the with the earth and with the world in all kinds of ways they opened a hotel in Kathmandu. they built a ship uh and set set sail um uh so they did a lot of things and they 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 were together as a group for a long time because like I said, they think they started in 69 or 70. That's right. And they didn't even start this biosphere thing until 90 or 91. Yeah, I think the idea f- and the concepts behind it were long gestating. But then they found, in the, I guess in the late 80s, uh, a, a Texas billionaire, right? Yes. Uh, who gave them the funds to build Biosphere 2. And could, what... Can you explain a little bit of what Biosphere 2 was? One of the things they that they were doing was they were having a little fun. And, and this is the kind of thing that they did all the time. They sort of tried to be a little bit provocative and a little bit playful. They called it Biosphere 2 with the express reason of wanting people to ask them, well, what, you know, what happened to Biosphere 1? <laughs> and and the, the answer was that, that Earth is Biosphere 1 um, and that, that they were creating a sort of a second Earth. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, like a self-contained, rather large structure, a geodesic dome or a series of them. Uh, that was the, and it was supposed to be an entirely self-contained uh, world uh, that people could live in um, and would be... Well, with, with multiple ecosystems. Right. They, they set up a, a lake or a body of water and a desert environment and a... Uh, rainforest environment and decided to seal themselves up in it for two years. How many people were in the group? There were eight. And they made a big media splash of it. And I remembered that. And I remembered the crazy costumes and jumpsuits that they wore, which were these red things. And I wonder, I wondered watching it, 
and after talking with you about it earlier today, if those costumes that they wore, not only did it get them attention, but were they, could they have been inspired by what the, what the Earth travelers at the end of Close Encounters are wearing when they go up in the big spaceship? Those kind of red, they're kind of red jumpsuits, right? Yeah, yeah. A lot of them were wearing sunglasses, as the, just like Richard Dreyfuss and everybody's wearing at the end of Close Encounters. And uh, the, you, you mentioned the geodesic domes and the kind of look of it. Another sci-fi movie that they were inspired by, that they, t- that they do talk about in the movie, is uh, Douglas Trumbull's film Silent Running, which is from a sci-fi film from 1972 and a kind of uh, key hippie film, I guess, <laughs> is one way to think about it. We were supposed to show it. Uh, along with Spaceship Earth on the closing night of the film festival. And this is a terrific, uh, one of my favorite sci-fi movies with Bruce Dern uh, from 1972 about uh, four astronauts and three robots on a spaceship uh, sponsored by American Airlines, if I remember right, that are floating somewhere above the Earth holding the last remnants of uh, plant life, Bio- biological plant life and water. Everyone on Earth has moved underground to, I would imagine, non-organic surroundings, and the last trees and br- uh, bushes and lakes and ponds are on this spaceship, and then they're ordered to uh, destroy the the plant lives which are held in these geodesic domes and return to Earth and Bruce Dern doesn't want to have anything to do with that and he decides to kind of hijack the mission and, and preserve the plant life for whatever generations are going to discover it, I guess. They admit that they were inspired by that, by that film. Um. And then, uh, well, and then back to the Biospherans saga... Things, uh, we'll keep this a spoiler-free discussion, but things don't go so smoothly uh, in the two years. And there are some major crises that come about. Starvation, uh, a problem with uh, invasive species, um, and... And the CO2 levels, um, and there are some issues with that. They Those, those rise... Uh, much higher than they expected them to. And it really messes with their health and psychology yeah. and mental health. Um, and uh, and then there are some other surprise developments that happen after the two-year period is up that deal with the kind of legacy of the project and the preservation of the, of the project. Let's say, uh, call it a... Uh, Surprise final act appearance by uh, someone who has a has had a key role in <laughs> American politics and culture over the last few years. Yeah, and 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 there's also a cute cameo towards the end uh, by uh, Jane Goodall. So if you're a fan of Jane, you get a couple minutes of her in this film. Yeah, that's right. I think you know. I I I think I, I mentioned this to you that. While I was watching it, I realized I had conflated the Biosphere 2 efforts with the 
Heaven's Gate cult, uh, even though they were about, I think, seven or eight years apart in their kind of media appearances. But, you know, both in the way that the Heaven's Gate cult believed they were on a spaceship and uh, and had their own kind of uh, weird pop uniforms right. to wear. Uh, and so uh, the, the Spaceship Earth, the movie, really held a lot of surprises for me because I thought it was going to be uh, a completely depressing experience. <laughs> what? Yeah. Or go, go somewhere <laughs> much darker than it did. Uh, well... And, uh, Absolutely, and and something that struck me watching it was was um, what a missed opportunity uh, the Pauly Shore film Biodome was. Uh, Biodome gets gets the whole which was clearly inspired by this Biosphere Two, uh, but it gets it all wrong because I think in Biodome it's a bunch of sort of stuffed shirt scientists and ecologists who are there, and it's you know. Goofy Pauly Shore and uh, Stephen Baldwin, who are the sort of disruptors. But the truth is that the, the, the team itself, the real Biospherians, were much closer to the Pauly Shore and Stephen Baldwin characters than they were to <laughs> traditional scientists. But I suppose that would be one I would I would check out, especially in light of uh, yeah of Spaceship Earth, yeah, which which we do recommend. Yes, we do. I I really I really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, the director is Matt Wolf. He did this movie, Wild Combination, a portrait of Arthur Russell, about the avant-garde cellist and disco producer. Uh, and he also did a film, have you seen this, Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project? I haven't. That was his last film before Spaceship Earth, and it got released. Um, but that is, I guess, all found footage that Marion Stokes yeah. uh, collected. Yeah. She was just a... She was a she just recorded television, right? But I don't know of a certain... Of television news. And she and her news, husband okay. did it relentlessly. I mean, they were recording 24-7 and they would they would sometimes uh, be going... They would go out to dinner and then cut their dinner short in order to get back in time to sort of take out the old cassette and put in the new... You know, this was in the mm. era of VHS cassettes. Before, before uh, TiVos. Yes. And produced by Stacey Reese, who we had as a guest at Cinematheque last year. Uh, with uh, Eagle Hunt, Eagle Huntress, right? Producer of the Eagle Huntress, and Spaceship Earth is being released by Neon, a uh, really great indie distributor, who uh, we've been working with at the Cinematheque and the Film Festival for a while. And uh, one of their staff is Chelsea Schuster, who uh, was part of our part of the Wood Film Committee and also part of our. Cinematech Sunday Cinematech staff at the Chazen for a year or two, I think, uh, during her during her last couple of years at at UW Madison. That's right. If you got handed program notes at the door of the Chazen and it wasn't Jim or myself handing them to you, it was probably Chelsea for a couple of years. That's right. And now she's helping to get the word out about Spaceship Earth, uh, and we are too. So you can uh, rent this via our blog or subscribe to our weekly e-newsletter to get the uh, links to the dedicated uh, website where you can purchase it. And if you purchase it that way, as I said, half of the rental costs go back to the Cinematech. So we want to recommend that experience. So we're going to cut over to two of our colleagues, Mike King and 
Kelly Conway, our fearless leader, who are going to talk about Deerskin, uh, the other rental offering this week, proceeds of which go to support the Cinematheque. So we'll let them take it away. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Mike King. I'm a programmer for the UW Cinematheque and Wisconsin Film Festival. And I'm joined here today on our podcast by Kelly Conway, who is the artistic director of the Wisconsin Film Festival and the Cinematheque. Hey, Kelly. Hey. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Hi, Hi. everybody. Doing good. We're here to talk about Deerskin, uh, which was slated to play the Wisconsin Film Festival, which was canceled, unfortunately. But you can rent it now through the UW Cinematheque website, which is cinema.wisc.edu. And it'll be there for $9.99 rental. Um, Kelly, you watched this movie last night, I know, for the first time. I did indeed watch Deerskin last night. What a weird and wonderful little film. It's really interesting because this film was selected for the director's fortnight at the Cannes Film Festival, which is the independent program that runs parallel to the official selection. So, I don't know, I was expecting something kind of, you know, typical of European art cinema, something with lots of ambiguity and... Uh, lots of kind of formal elegance, maybe some experimentation. and But it's not exactly what you get. Um, no, I suppose maybe we should give the premise at this point, um, a little background on the film. So basically, uh, this is a new French film uh, starring Jean Dujardin, who um, our audiences have seen perhaps in The Artist um, or the OSS uh, 117 films. And uh, he plays a man who uh, acquires a deerskin coat and becomes compelled by the idea that his coat should be the only coat in the entire world. And he sets off the rest of the film trying to eliminate the rest of the coats that exist. Um, along the way, he meets Adele Anel, who plays a bartender who sort of gets sucked into his scheme and they document it together for a film. Exactly. So when the film starts, it looks like it's going to be some kind of midlife crisis film. We see this guy uh, wearing a corduroy jacket. You know, he could be a professor. He's traveling on a long car journey. He stops at a at a roadside restroom and removes the coat. And then you think, okay, this guy is shedding an old life and getting ready for a new life. But that's only the half of it. And he disposes of the coat in a pretty unique way. Um, by, uh, Indeed. Yeah. By we'll let, we'll let yeah. viewers discover that for themselves. Yeah, it's the first of many uh, unusual gags in the movie. Right, and that's the thing I like about this film. From one minute to the next, you never know what's going to happen. You think you have it figured out. You think, okay, male midlife crisis, road film. Uh, he's going to meet someone. He's, you know, other things are going to happen. But it's not that at all. No, no, indeed. Um, yeah, it's full of surprises, and it's really uh, a fun time. And it's, you know, if you're looking for something that's totally escapist, that has no relevance to anything whatsoever in the world right now, Deerskin will fit the bill. I'm looking for that right now, and yeah. I got it last night. Yeah. <laughs> the film is like a strange mix of comedy and horror. Um, actually, not so strange, now that I think about it. Um, ben Reiser reminded me that this is kind of like one of those films about the evil ventriloquist doll, you know, where you think, is is this um, protagonist the source of these actions, or is the inanimate 
object, in this case the leather jacket, has it acquired powers that that lead our protagonists to do bad things? So we've seen this before. Yeah, and in fact, even in his films, um, you know, he first came onto the radar of a lot of cinephiles, and where I first heard about him was with his third feature, uh, Rubber, which was about another inanimate object that acquires strange powers. In this case, it was a tire that sort of becomes sentient and starts blowing people up as it rolls around the California desert. Um, and this film also played uh, Cannes in 2010. Um, and, you know, that's sort of his... It, even, I think, uh, Deerskin references Rubber directly in that the title Deerskin comes up over a shot of a single spinning tire, um, which seems to deliberately recall it. Um, but, yeah, I need to see a film about a homicidal car tire, yeah, for sure. that's how a lot of people feel when you're going through a film festival catalog things can kind of run together but then you see oh i need to see the guy the movie about the guy who's obsessed with his jacket or the movie about the car tire killing everybody he has a knack for like an irresistibly absurd premise that uh jumps right out so th- i have to confess this is the first film i had seen by quentin dupieux what do you know about him mike well um he started as uh, an electronic musician uh under the name of mr oizo and in the late 90s, he even had some sizable hits in Europe. Um, and he started directing music videos then. And to this day, he's kind of like the complete filmmaker. He writes, directs, and edits his films. He does all the cinematography. He does the music. And he still releases albums as Mr. Oizo as well. I see. So in a way, he's in the world of film, he's like the consummate auteur, doing everything, writing, shooting, editing. But in another way, he, he's not. He comes out of a different milieu, right? The composer, DJ, music video world of the 90s. Definitely. And he, you know, a lot of his movies have uh, premiered at Sundance in like midnight sections. Um, some of them, a lot of them have been in English, you know, which is somewhat unusual, I think, for a French filmmaker. And some of them have starred Eric Wareheim of the American comedy duo Tim and Eric. So they probably recognize each other as kindred spirits. Um in the same sort of like absurdist, uh, you know, craziness that both these people offer. I see. He's a really interesting figure. I mean, it's not as if, on the one hand, it's not as if France doesn't produce comedies on a regular basis. It does. A lot of them don't get exported to the U.S., but it has a really robust comedy um, tradition. But I just haven't seen anything quite like this before. I mean, for a minute, it reminded me of that film by Bruno Dumont, 29 yeah. Palms, um, where people drive endlessly and then the th- whole thing explodes in violence at the end. Mm-hmm. Or also that film by that other film by Bruno Dumont called um, Slack Bay, mm-hmm. a crazy film set in Normandy at the turn of the century about uh, in which the aristocrats confront the working class. And it's all about cannibalism and violence is totally grotesque. This film, I have to say, is not that gross. It's not, for those of you who are uh, looking to stay away from a gore fest, not to worry, this is not a gore fest. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, Dumont's an interesting comparison because um, Dupieux also, you know, his his cinematography is somewhat at a remove. Um, There is uh, artificiality sometimes to the performances. Actually, I would say Deerskin is a significant step in his career towards, you know, inching ever so slightly to accessibility um, while still maintaining his sensibility. And that comes 
from the lead performances by Jean Dujardin and Adele Anel, who bring, who are less deadpan than even his previous performances, if you can imagine that. They're a little bit more, a little bit more, uh, you know, interesting to watch. I would say. I see, and let's talk about the look of the film. Um, I, the first thing that struck me was, you know, it's the color is really desaturated. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't look like a cut rate, you know micro budget film for sure but it also doesn't look like you know a hundred million dollar film what what do you have to say about the the cinematography or just the kind of the overall look well i agree with about um, it is striking the desaturation in fact when i saw this film at the chicago film festival i wondered if the projector wasn't giving me all you know i, I thought it might need a new bulb <laughs> but watching it again it's like no that's the look um and he's very precise about um, how he wants his films to look. I even, and I think he has a lot of attention to detail on the sets. You know, there's a fetishistic quality to the DV footage. Um, there's an, a part of this film where Jean Dujardin starts filming his efforts to get rid of all the jackets on a little DV camera, and I, you can tell that uh, Quentin Dupieux really likes the look of the DV footage, and he just wants to, you know. Uh, push that aesthetic forward you know i feel like he adds errors that normally you would try and eliminate or even on the tv you know the aux input thing i feel like he's really into those details that are right me too like he really kind of loves slightly old technologies absolutely yeah like when adele anel gets that kind of weird recorder um out of the her her nightstand and and removes it from its container and is getting ready to watch and and edit the footage that Jean Dujardin's character is like, what is that thing she's pulling out? Who who has even seen a machine like that in 15 years? Right. I really feel like that shot struck me when I watched it as well, because you feel like Quentin Dupieux is just, he wants to bring that machine out. He wants to dust it off. You know, I feel like he must have used that for older projects and is just excited about the old technology of it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun in that way. The other thing I like about this film is, unlike a lot of European art films, um, it, which, of which this is not one, it, it refuses to invite from us any kind of serious interpretation of what's going on. I mean, just when you think, oh, this is a film about a man's mental breakdown, or maybe it's the backstory, origin story for a serial killer, or maybe it's a critique of consumption. You know, is he saying comedy, uh, commodity fetishism, you know, is wrong? Our obsession with objects of clothing or designer brands is wrong. But then the film takes a turn and you realize, no, he's not interested in that kind of social problem film or social critique. It's just not, he's, he's, he's interested in something else. Yeah, I, I agree. Um yeah, I had the same thought about like midlife crisis thing. It sort of invites that um, in, in a certain point. But then I, I what I find most enjoyable about uh, this film in particular is just following the weird logic of the characters. You know, you can kind of see wh- how um, Jean Dujardin is sort of coming up with these ideas or at least where he's getting them and where he thinks he's going. But the idea of stealing every jacket in the world is impossible. And he's, you know, it, it would take him at the rate he's going, he'll never finish. Right. 
Right, exactly. And it, it, again, it's that minute-to-minute experience of watching the film that is enjoyable. It's as if we are sitting there with him, coming up with new ideas on the spur of the moment for how to proceed. He becomes a filmmaker because the man who sold him the jacket also threw in the camera for free. Yeah, and he just sort of backs into it. Um, it's really, right. it's an enjoyable movie. And what about that line, if I'm making a films, if I'm making films, doesn't that make me a filmmaker? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's probably, uh, you know, you, you, that's probably uh, Quentin Dupuis' motto. Deerskin is available for rental at the UW Cinematheque starting Friday, May 8th. You can find it at our website, cinema.wisc.edu. You can also sign up for our newsletter where you'll find out about future streaming uh, films. Also available this weekend is the Communication Arts Showcase, which will go live on at comarts.wisc.edu slash showcase on Friday, May 8th. This is your chance to see uh, student work that has been produced throughout the semester by Communication Arts students. There will be a number of short films, documentaries, uh, editing projects, podcasts, all of it up there for you to enjoy. So check it out at comarts.wist.edu slash showcase. Don't miss the showcase. It's always great. <laughs>